The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. part with which Wilbur Smith deals in this Acts 17 passage is, of course, the judgment. And in saying that anybody, whether a Christian or not, on his view as a non-Christian can nevertheless allow for the notion of judgment, he refers to the Nuremberg trials in which he says there is evidence of the fact that there is in man a sense of justice and that people want to see justice done. Criminals may get away with things for a while, but after a while the consciousness of man recognizes that justice must be done. Consequently, we have here an argument for the notion that God will in all likelihood come back to Christ to judge the heavens and the earth. Now that again is on a purely non-Christian basis, and it doesn't (coughs) prove the Christian theory of judgment at all. Now, there you have creation resurrection and the resurrection is given by Paul as evidence of the coming judgment now the resurrection as Paul sees it is of course the climax of the work of Christ the son of God who in his human nature dies for our sins on the cross and who rises again the third day from the dead and who says in his trial to those who are condemning him that he will come again to judge the quick and the dead and that he will condemn them unless they now repent. Well, now, that shows, you see, how utterly futile it is to attempt to prove the Christian position to those who have a totally different outlook. Now, that other outlook is always composed of the three elements, human autonomy, pure, brute, factual principle of individuation, and an abstract principle of logic, which is either found the way Plato found it in reality as such, in the supposed eternal changeless realm of being above this world, unrelated to this world, or it is found, as Kant and modern thinkers say, in the organizing powers of man's own intellect or mind. Now, unless there be questions, as I'll be very... I'll be honest for a minute. What is the principle of individuality? Well, please don't be honest for a minute. Please be honest. Very good. Yes, I wish you all would be. I don't care if you think that's it, that you're revealing ignorance. I don't care how ignorant you think you are. You're not ignorant. You're no more ignorant than anybody else. We're here to learn, aren't we? I don't care. All right, with that understanding, that is the philosophical terminology employed ordinarily to indicate the reason why a thing is what it is. In other words, now why is a thing what it is? We say as Christians the thing is what it is because God provides for its being so and so in his plan. Therefore man is a creature, he is a sinner, he is redeemed if he is a Christian. All right, here is uh, Mr. Green over there. Now who is Mr. Green? Well, he's 
a student at Reform Seminary. He's a married man. He's in charge of one of these houses where the boys that are with him are young and hard to control. <laughs> and uh, the faculty have him there as a sort of overseer. Uh, now, all right, I keep on explaining who Mr. Green is. I'll never do it, don't you see? Because there are so many ways from which, points of view from which Mr. Green can be set. And on a non-Christian basis, you would have to explain it, explain and on. You'd have to get every class in which green. Otherwise, if I don't have every class, there might be another Mr. Green. Don't you see? In other words, the, there must not be a possible duplicate. Now, that makes the thing to be a thing what it is. Now, on the Christian basis, that is true because of the fact that God does control. He, now Leibniz used the in expression individuation by complete description. Complete description. Now, if you don't accept the Christian position, then it is your business to be able to describe what that individuality is and to describe it exhaustively. See, that's the alternative, the only alternative to the Christian position. Now, that is what we mean by a Christian principle of individuation or of differentiation, is that God makes things to be different from one another because he has a plan in which he wants the multiplicity of the universe. He wants all the flowers, different kinds of flowers, all the animals, all the human beings. He wants everybody to be different from everybody else in order that through his uniqueness he may contribute to the multiformity of the glory of God. Don't you see? That's the vision. And that's why you have individually a task to perform. The, we speak sometimes of the cultural mandate given to Adam in paradise. Subdue the earth. Bring out its resources. And you now live in 1968. You're preparing here for the gospel ministry. You're going into a work in Christ's kingdom, whether as a minister or as a scientist or a philosopher at least as a believer, as a redeemed child of God. What do you want to do? You want to claim this world for Christ, every square inch of it, as old Abram Kuyper said, every square inch of it. Now, that means that you must enter not only into the field of theology, you must enter into the field of philosophy. You must enter into the field of science, just for convenience, dividing them, the reality into those, I mean, human interest in those three sectors. Well, that means, therefore, that you as a Reformed Christian have a task to perform which nobody else is performing. Now, the neo-evangelicals aren't even in sight of that ideal. Now, you would think that Gordon Clark, being himself a Calvinist, would see that, you see. And in a sense, he sees it as a theologian. Then he says, the thing is what it is. It can't possibly be anything else but what place it has in this plan of God. But as a, as a, as a uh, apologist, he says, we have to be on the par with others and we have to use archaeology as facts. But what he's chiefly interested in is to show that Christianity answers according to the law of contradiction. That is that we don't believe anything absurd. Well, my friends, we do believe the absurd from the unbeliever's point of view. We'll get to that when we see what Tertullian had to say on this, credo quia absurdum. Well, let's go back then to the early... We'll come back to these gentlemen. 
at any time that you want, you can bring them in, but we'll also naturally, I hope, come back. Well, here then is Justin Martyr, the first philosopher apologist for Christianity. And he says to these people, those who were philosophers, whom he's trying to win for Christianity, he says, I've got something better than I formerly had. I was with you where you are now. And I've got something higher and something better, something more comprehensive than you have. I have pretty much the same sort of philosophy that you have. I have theism, you have theism. But I have Christ in addition, you see. Now, he did not challenge their principle of freedom or autonomy. He did not challenge their principle of individuation. He did not say that the facts are what the Christ, what Christ, through his revelation in scripture says they are and you are an image bearer of God and you are a sinner and you're coming into judgment because you don't handle the facts of God here you're on this estate and you're acting as though it's a grab bag as though you can do with it what you please actually you are here as guests you should handle these things for the sake of this institution you haven't any right to run off with this and with that and to do whatever you please. Now, you are apostate. You are under the wrath of God because in your philosophy, your philosophy is not an innocent seeking for the truth, but it is a sinful effort by which you're holding under the truth and unrighteousness. That's what Justin should have told these Greeks. Don't you see? He didn't do it. He didn't do it. Now, therefore, he didn't... And then he says... Now, our philosophy is very reasonable, too. Certainly just as reasonable as is yours. In many respects, ours is the same as yours. And especially our God is the anonymous one. Now, you know, he says that in your God, let me just refer back to Plato again. Plato says, look, he says, here's the good and here's the evil. And then God is the source of the good. God is the source of the good. But surely God cannot be the source of the evil. I did that myself. That's the trouble. God cannot be the source of evil. There must be, therefore, another independent source of evil. Now, that means so far as man's intellectual efforts are concerned, when you go from this world to that world, you are still having the same problems. You are still having absolute dualism between one principle of good and one principle of evil. Now, that's the way Plato argues. Then he says, when we are finally to have the good, which is above good and evil, then it takes a woman, Diotima, the inspired, to lift you up by intuition. In other words, then you're out of the reach of intellect. You're no longer dealing conceptually with things, but you're dealing just intuitionally by religious inspiration. Now, that is an admission, don't you see, that Plato cannot intellectually solve the problem. He remains on the level, he remains on the level of absolute dualism between two principles, the one of good and the other of evil. Now, Justin says, look, your great philosopher Plato had to finally appeal to an anonymous, 
being, did he not? An unnameable one, the holy other one. So do we. Our God is holy other. And he is that unnamed. Therefore, your unnameable God and our unnameable God, they are the one and same God. The only way in which you and we differ is that we have Jesus Christ, which you don't have. Now, you see, this was for all the serious earnestness and for all the heart Christianity of the man, this was not a good argument. And this is the typically fundamentalist argument. In other words, what we actually have to do as Christians and what it is our responsibility as Reformed Christians to do is to challenge every major basic point in the non-Christian's approach, don't you see? If you don't, there's no use of challenging him on details because the details are for him what they are because of his basic principles, you see. Here, I'm in Mississippi, all right, and I'm bringing a slight trifle, a bit of ground of Pennsylvania with me under my feet, don't you see, and a little bit of the atmosphere of the damn Yankees, all right, uh, let's say, don't you see, but I can't change the atmosphere of Mississippi, can I? I'm already influenced by it. Soon I'll be a Mississippian. Now, don't you see? Therefore, what we have to do is to take the total Christian atmosphere. The resurrection is part of a totality picture which involves creation. It involves the historic fall. It involves the self-identifying Christ. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth. He can identify himself first and make it stick and only on his authority, with his authority can you start and then say, accept him on authority, bow before this cross and accept him, repent. I declare him unto you. You proclaim. You don't do anything but proclaim. Now that does not mean therefore that there is no apologetic argument. It means quite the contrary. It means that then alone do you have a good point of contact because then alone can you, for argument's sake, go with the other man on his ground and go around with him in circles a thousand times and point out to him that he will never get any further. He will never get out of this cauldron. He's a man of water made out of water. He's got to build a ladder of water, set it on water and against the water to climb out of the water. And that is as futile as any effort of interpretation of reality is. We've got to show that he is, if he carries his own position through logically, his, his life is utterly meaningless, that he can't find himself in distinction from somebody else. Well, now we'll come to that more specifically when we deal with modern thinking and get into modern existentialism. Now, are there questions about this first thing? I'm trying to illustrate in each instance how it is the same difficulty always over again. And if I do that often enough, then I think you will finally begin to see at least a glimmering of what it's all about. Now, that is, that's not very complimentary, is it? <laughs> I take it all back. <laughs> I only see a glimmering myself. So. Now... Uh, then Justin meets Trifo, the old man, a Jew, and so he starts with Trifo. Now, you see, he includes in the Jews 
and in the Gentiles, the Greeks, you see, all mankind, two classes. Well, what is his interest, of course, in talking with Trifle? Good morning, Mr. Trifle. Trifle, it's nice, nice morning. Yes, very fine morning. You always talk about the weather first. And then you have, you always have a point of contact in the weather. The next thing is you talk about his family, don't you see? That's what he's always interested in. Everything he's interested in. You give him five minutes or more as he needs it to expound on the things he's interested in. And I don't mean this in a deceptive sense. You must show a genuine interest in him. You are really doing this to win him, aren't you? You are a missionary. You're out to save him. Won't you go to the trouble of learning his about him and his family and his interests? It is him in that situation that you want to redeem. All right, assuming you're going to... Dear Mr. Trifle, nice morning. Uh, well, says Trifle, I hear that you, having been a philosopher, have been converted to this new sect, Christianity. Now I know all about this sect. I'm a fairly old man and I've heard all about this and I know what happened in Jerusalem that our, our leaders of course crucified this man Jesus because he wasn't a monotheist even. Now Moses says that the Lord thy God is one God and here he said that he was also God. Now weren't our leaders right in crucifying him? They said to him on one occasion when he said Thy sins be forgiven thee to this man who was let down through the ceiling, uh, the paralytic. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Then the scribes and Pharisees said, He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God? Who makest thou thyself? And at the trial, Art thou, I adjure thee, says Caiaphas, by God. He says, Art thou the Son of God? Well, he had said it all the time that he was. But he said it once more, Thou sayest, I am. Well, ye have heard his blasphemy. What need have we of further witnesses? Don't you see? That was the end of it. He, from their point of view, was a blasphemer, nothing less. And he ought to be put to death as such. Now, fortunately, the Greeks were also monotheists, you see. Now, you've tried to convert these Greek philosophers, and you have said yourself that you are a monotheist, that the Greeks were monotheists, didn't Plato believe in one God, and didn't... Aristotle believed also in one God. Now, the funny part of it, if I may say so, was that, of course, these Jews, after the exile, had gotten their monotheism largely through Greek influence. That is to say, the idea being that they were formerly, of course, Jews. Oh, yes, we're Jews. We're followers of Moses, 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 and have the law, the Torah, but we must have the living Torah, the living law. It must not be a static something. It must be applied to the situation. We must have a situation ethics. And we must apply, therefore, we must apply the law of Moses to the current situation. Therefore, in practice, the developing ethical consciousness was their standard. That was the standard of the Greeks. That was the standard of apostate man what man thought was right. What's, you remember we said the first morning that Socrates, when he was discussing this thing with Euthyphro, said, yes, it's very nice, Euthyphro, when you say what God says about the goodness of things, but I want to know what the good is in itself regardless of what gods or men say about it. 
Well, now, the Jews still wanted to hear what Moses said, but they interpreted and misinterpreted and violently misinterpreted Moses so that they no longer were reading Moses at all in any sense. Now, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, now, my friends, he says, I stand on the same ground with you, common ground with you. We both believe in Moses and the prophets. No, he doesn't say so. He says, you don't believe in Moses and the prophets, truly. Oh, formerly you're in the Presbyterian Church. Of course you are. And you're, a, you're supra, supra. And you're the leaders. And you know all about Moses and the prophets, much more than I do, as it were. You're, at least you're supposed to. You spend your whole lifetime reading Moses and the prophets. And yet you don't understand an iota tittle of Moses and the prophets. Because if you did, you would have seen that they spake of me. And now you say, I blaspheme. Moses, if he were here, he would say, this is the one of whom I spake. Now, don't you see what Jesus was teaching, of course, that he and the Father were one. He says, I and the Father are one. I am God, the Father is God. We are one God, the Holy Spirit whom he sends is one God with him. Triune God. The Greeks were holding to a, an abstract principle of oneness which the Jews had identified with the statement of the Old Testament, the Lord thy God is one God. And that's why they now were with the Greeks and they opposed Jesus and they said Jesus blasphemed. Now they misunderstood therefore. Now, unfortunately, Justin Martyr doesn't see this fact. And so he tries by the ordinary butler analogy method slight anachronism. Uh, he tries to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Well, all right. He, what does he do? Don't you see? He says, look, in the Old Testament, there are prefigurations of the coming Christ. Now, I ask you to see, ask you to see that all that has been fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. Oh, will that hold it? You better fix it for me, I guess, because I don't know how to fix that miserable thing. <laughs> I'm on a tether. <laughs> well, I'm trying to save you fellas, but my life... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, sir. There we go. Oh, now that's it. All right, hold it, Randall. <laughs> well, there we have then in Justin Martyr the first confrontation of Christian apologetics with the world, the first effort to present Christianity to a pagan and to a Jew. Now let's speak for a moment of the modern Jew while we're at it. How many kinds of Jews are there, religiously speaking? What are they? Liberal, Orthodox, and Reformed. Now, Reformed are just like Reformed Presbyterians, I guess, huh? Now, liberal, just what is the difference between liberal, Orthodox, and Reformed? 
which are the better, which are nearer, which are easier to convert, you think? Huh? The liberal? The orthodox? Well, we got some for the liberal, we got some for the orthodox. Let's have a few for the reform. Okay. All right. Why are the liberals more easy to convert? Whoever said that has got to defend himself. Who said that? Did you, Mr. Green? You. All right. He didn't, they don't know, they're not grounded in Jewish faith. In other words, they're not so tightly connected with the historic, stubbornly connected with the Jewish, and so they're a little bit more open-minded. All right. Why are the Reformed Jews more easy to convert? Who said that? All right, Mr. Mason. No, sir. Mr. Ma Mr. Mason, you answer. You're the victim. They've come more up today. Well, we just said that about the liberals, though. The liberals are more so. Yeah, more modern view than the orthodox, but not as modern a view as the liberals, would they? All right, George, what do you say? I would have lost too much for you to answer against me. All right, about the orthodox. They Mr. Miller. I say orthodox would be the hardest to read because they're not steeped so much in the scriptures as they are steeped in the traditions of of the Jewish Jews, like the Talmud and the Mishnah and all this other stuff. They never read the scriptures. They don't read the scripture as such very much. So the orthodox is probably the hardest to read because they're connected to the. I would say they would all fit in the same boat. Oh, thank you, my friend. I'm with you. <laughs> Well, you see, this is interesting because there may be an element of truth in all of these things. Psychologically speaking, uh, you don't have the stubbornness of an orthodox Jew for the rights and all of the traditions and all of that. In the liberals, he's uh, loosened up a bit from that. But that's only negative, isn't it? I mean, that's only negative. That doesn't indicate any inherent favorable disposition to what you positively want to give him as a Christian. And then, on the other hand, the liberals, well... Their separation from this means that they're tied on to your modern outlook of things. Uh, how many of you know some modern Jew? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, well, I know. I mean, some, some great modern philosopher Jew. I'm trying to think of someone. How? Oh, what was this old gentleman's name who died only very last year or so? Martin Huber. Let's have him, shall we? Now, what does Martin Huber say? Yes, I thou. I thou. Very good. But what does he say about Jesus and about Christianity? How does anybody know? He says that... All right, now does that make him, is that an orthodox viewpoint of view or is that a liberal or a reform point of view? Yeah, it does. Okay, that's good. All right. Now, very good. Very good. We'll see that what this business means. I, thou, I, it. 
pretty soon. But what does he, does anybody happen to know what he says about Jesus? You say he just was a little more confident of the idea relationship and maybe something else. Uh, Martin Buber is? Or, or uh, Jesus? <coughs> yeah, in other words, what he actually... Yeah, what he actually says verbally or virtually so is that Jesus is his brother. He regards him as a brother and that Jesus had the real Jewish feeling and that he being a Jew, he can understand Jesus as a Jew better than Christians can. And he's all for inter-council of churches and he's willing to join in with the Protestants and the Jews, I mean, and the Roman Catholics pretty soon. Where all things went wrong, says Martin Buber, is when, when Thomas, after the resurrection supposedly of Jesus, said, my Lord and my God, don't you see? Now that, he says, I can't go along with that, of course. And Paul's theology, oh, of course I can't go along with that. I can go along with Jesus. He was a Jew and a nice Jew, and he was a good eye thou Jew. And, and uh, he was in Zalgemein and sehr guter Mann, don't you see? Well, now that is your modern, your modern Jew. Now we'll come back to that. Why modern Jews and modern neoconscience, as somebody said, I it people and I thou people and modern Roman Catholics can all get together I have that little book that some of you may have looked into it on the confession of 1967 and uh, I'll take up that development one of these mornings if we can now what the reason for pointing it out just now is this that really basically none of these three schools of Jews are any basically basically any better than any other more sympathetic positively are they than the other because they are all against saying that Jesus is the son of God and that through him we must be saved from sin and from the wrath to come none of them will admit that and yet that's what you want them to admit and that they are sinners and that they must repent now therefore you're Modern Jews, I was I told you the other day, speaking to a great, uh, about 50, 60 modern Jews in synagogue in New York, and they listen politely. They're gentlemen and ladies with all kinds of beautiful furs and all of that. They were a wealthy group, and they were, they could afford to have me come from Philadelphia and tell them about fundamentalism. And they thought that it was no smoke, no drink, see? And how ridiculous can you get? And they have had the liberal Protestant point of view, they had the Roman Catholic point of view, and we're in it all. Well, and they have had the liberal Protestant point of view, they had the Roman Catholic point of view, and we're in it all. Well, now we'll take up Martin Buber a little bit later in the modern situation. But just now, you see, it doesn't make a speck of difference what kind of Jew you are, basically. You're same as the Greek, fundamentally. You see, for us, all people are the same in this respect. They're all creatures of God. Actually, none of them will admit it. They're all hostile to the idea that they are sinners, and therefore they are negative against the Christ of the Scriptures, unless so be that when you challenge them and present the challenge of the Christ of the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit blesses your efforts and gives them light, then they will accept. Then there is nobody hard enough of heart that he can resist the grace of God. But none of them are any nearer to the kingdom inherently. You see, it's a little bit like the roof of a house. You have bad people 
will say down here the mechanists and you have the Freudian psychologists and the materialists, they're just about ready to drop off. But the idealists and then the Boston personalists, they're awfully good people. And the Roman Catholics, they got one lay VPs that <laughs> Boston personalists or, or the others. <laughs> well, the Roman Catholics have one leg over this side and one leg over the other. They are half within Christianity, half within Aristotelianism. Well, now, all right, we're not getting off to a good start with Justin Martyr, which doesn't mean that he isn't a good man or wasn't a good man, that he wasn't a good believer, but that he has tried to be sure to reach the pagan and the Jew. He has tried to bring them the real Christ, the real Christ of the scriptures. And we're not, I'm not saying that he wasn't, that God didn't bless his efforts and that some were converted through his efforts. I'm not saying that. I'm only saying that he is not really as yet seeing what has to be done in order to challenge these men to forsake the evil of their way. And that you, we must therefore stand on his shoulders and look further. Now, all right, next one is, he's pretty near disappeared. <laughs> can you still, can you still find him? It's Irenaeus, is it not? Irenaeus. Now, he wrote a book against heresies. Now, I'll not spend much time on Irenaeus. It's the same problem, essentially, that we have with Justin Martyr. He writes against heresies. Now, he deals with all the peoples, the different heretics there are. and But he does not either any more than Justin Martyr see that if you're to deal with heresies, you are to deal with one heresy, that all the variety of heresies are one heresy. You remember when Joshua was about to die that he talked to the people and said, choose ye this day whom ye will serve. If you want to serve the gods beyond the flood where Terah came from and served other gods Abraham came from or the god of the Amorites or the Hittites or the Girgashites or the Jebusites or all the other ites. If you want to pick out any of them choose ye this day whom ye will serve. As for me and my house we will serve the Lord. Now, was there any they could pick the Girgashites form or the Jebusites what difference does it make? They were all scheduled for destruction by the Jews, weren't they? They were all, again, the progress of the covenant people of God. Here was the Ark of the Covenant coming through Jordan, and God had split the Jordan in two. The Ark stood in the middle, and the priests, as Bunyan puts it, when the soles of the priests touched the, just the border of it, the Jordan split in two. The ark stood in the middle. They took up those stones out of the bottom of the, of the Jordan and they put them on a pile, one for each tribe as a memorial. And when you come later, little Joseph and little Mary are with you. And they ask, Daddy, what mean these stones? Then you must tell them, we were in Egypt in the house of bondage. Our God is a different God from all the gods of all the nations. All the gods of all the nations are idolaters. They worship the creature more than the creator. But our God is the creator of heaven and earth. He drave out the heathen before us. He gave us this land for our inheritance. The iniquity of the Amorites was full. They must be driven out. And we must possess it. And we must make a finished job of this. We must not intermingle with them. We must not intermarry with them. We must not take their 
sons for our daughters or take their daughters for our sons. We must have absolute antithesis between them in the interest of establishing this covenant people and that then this covenant people may bring forth the Messiah and that through the Messiah the nations of the world may be blessed. The gospel is not for the destruction of men, but it is for the destruction of evil in the interest of through the Jews, salvation is to come to the world, is it not? Well, these Jews have only an inkling of insight into this, into their mission, into their task. They rebelled and they turned again and again against God. They were not covenant conscious. The one thing that we need to do in our preaching is to make men covenant conscious, that is, aware of the fact that we have a task to perform which nobody else in the world has. <clears throat> and that that involves a negative attitude against sin in every one of its forms and most of all within ourselves first you remember that when Israel was just across the Jordan that there was Achan who had stolen some of the things that he had found in Egypt he says a, a garment of beautiful clothes he says and some gold a weft of gold and some silver it's all buried under the ground in my tent and Joshua says son what have you done son well that shows the that Joshua had a warm heart for this his son but he couldn't do anything but punish his son and so he must be put out of the way Israel must sanctify itself it must just across the Jordan it must all the people then living hadn't been circumcised in the desert that had been neglected the sign of the covenant had not been applied to the children of the covenant and now then, before they are entering in the promised land, that sign of the covenant must be uh, put on all male inhabitants of this people. And if that makes them, as it were, easy prey to their enemies, God will take care of them. When they're helpless, they need not be afraid. Let them be aware of the fact that they have this task to perform. Well, that's all that God is asking us. I wish that C.S. Lewis had, had an inkling of this. He had not even an inkling of this biblical vision of the task of God's covenant people in that day or in our day. Now, are there any questions about Justin and Irenaeus? Well, maybe we can still talk about Tertullian. Now, Tertullian, what do you know about Tertullian? Does anybody have that famous expression that is always used in connection with Tertullian's name? Huh? How shall I put it anywhere? Where you? How? No, credo. Credo. Yes. Credo quia absurdum. I believe because it is absurd. Now, would you believe Christianity because it's absurd? Well... There's just one little hitch there. Tertullian didn't say it for one little mistake. <laughs> it, it was in his book On the Flesh that he's supposed to have said it. Well, he does say something like it. It is, he doesn't say, we, I believe this thing, Christianity, because it's absurd. But I believe what you think to be absurd. Now, that's what he did say. And I do believe that which is certainly, from your point of view, fantastically absurd and is un utterly unreasonable well that's good to say isn't it 
Now, we must, and this is what Tertullian meant, puts Tertullian ahead above anybody that lived before him. He said, our God is a different God from the God of the Greeks. Our God is the triune God of the Scriptures. He's the first one to develop the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is an important thing. It isn't until you have a sound theology that you can have a sound apologetics. Don't you see, they go pari passo. They go parallel with one another. If you have a defective Roman Catholic theology, you will have a defective Roman Catholic apologetics. If you have an Armenian theology, you'll have an Armenian apologetics. And you should have. You should be a butler right if in apologetics if you're an Armenian. Butler was an Armenian in his theology, don't you see? But if you're reformed in your theology, then you shouldn't have a butler right apologetics. Now, therefore, here you have in the first instance a move ahead. We're going ahead because he says, believe in your own principles and take your principle of individuation from your own resources. Build a building according to the blueprint that is given you from above. Don't look at the Greeks. What hath Jerusalem to do with Athens, he says. That was one of his famous statements. What hath, uh, what hath all belief to do with unbelief? He put them antithetically over against one another. Now in all that he was just 100,000% right. That is, namely, that we must live from our own principles. The more you, if you fail to do that, in the interest, supposedly, of winning the other fellow, you will always lose out. You see. You're always defeating your own purposes. In other words, build up your own theology totally from what he calls the rule of faith. Therefore, with the idea of the Trinity goes that of absolute authority. We accept this thing, he says. On the say-so, the truth is truth because God says it's true. Because the self-identifying Christ speaks in this. This is our rule of faith. You have another rule of faith, which is based on human autonomy. And you are trying by logic, apart from the truth of Scripture, to see what is true and what is right. Now, in all this, I would say, Tertullian helps us forward. Now, there's good reason for discussing these things. In other words, what I shall say a little bit later, I hope will be a lot more meaningful to you because of what I'm saying now. That is, this is the historic foundation for it all. Now, however, then Tertullian slips back into the same sort of thing again. He has two treatises on the soul. And in those treatises, he does just the way Justin Martyr did and the way Arnaeus did try to say the soul is something like Plato. Plato taught us pretty well what the soul is. The soul is, oh, partly eternal, and knowledge is memory of the fact that we were essentially eternal. And we have in here built into the soul naturally a Christianity. Christianity is naturally part of the soul, the logos, which operates in the Greeks. And this was true already of Justin Martyr and of Arnaeus. They believed in what they call the Logos theology, reason. And reason is controlled by the Greeks. And we believe in the Logos. Christ is the Logos. And it's the same Logos. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Through him all men see the light. The Greeks were Christians in advance. Socrates and these men who follow the Logos were, as it were, premature Christians. They had the same principles. They got that wisdom from the Jews 
who were in Egypt at one time. It came from the Jews. So you see the point is that what the Greeks have is, is on the way to what the Christians have, only they don't go as far as. Now we're on the way therefore to seeing something better with Tertullian, but we don't really get out of the situation yet. Well, I guess we'll stop at this point. Now,